The Omicron Emergency Booster National Mission has been launched. We are at the end of day one of it. A planned one million people will get vaccinated every day between now and New Year's Eve. We probably won't meet that target, but it could be enough to get us through the worst of Omicron. Or could it? That's obviously going to be our question for tonight. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm very happy to be joining you, Michael. Uh, I've got my own booster booked in for Thursday. So we're, we're making quick ground here. I got my own booster last Thursday. I went on Get Jabbed, the Reddit page, queued up for three hours, best three hours I have spent in the last few months. Not, not because it was so enjoyable, but because it was very worthwhile. Apparently, those walk-in centers are going to be a big part of of, of this next round of this strategy. So if, you, if you've got time to get queuing, do get queuing. We are also going to be showing you some of Keir Starmer's address to the nation. Obviously, Boris Johnson had one yesterday. Keir Starmer had one today. And we are going to talk at the close of the show, actually, at one of the most outrageous and shocking stories I have heard about the Metropolitan Police in a really, really long time. Just every, every element of it. So do stay tuned for that. At 8pm on Sunday, Britain tuned into a pre-recorded message from the Prime Minister. No one should be in any doubt. There is a tidal wave of Omicron coming. And I'm afraid it is now clear that two doses of vaccine are simply not enough to give the level of protection we all need. But the good news is that our scientists are confident that with a third dose, a, a booster dose, we can all bring our level of protection back up. Today, we're launching the Omicron Emergency Booster national mission, unlike anything we've done before in the vaccination programme, to get boosted now. A fortnight ago, I said we would offer every eligible adult a booster by the end of January. Today, in light of this Omicron emergency, I'm bringing that target forward by a whole month. Everyone eligible aged 18 and over in England will have the chance to get their booster before the new year. And we've spoken today to the devolved administrations to confirm the UK government will provide additional support to accelerate vaccinations in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. The Omicron Emergency Booster National Mission might not be a catchy name for a government policy, but if the NHS can pull it off, it could have a dramatic effect. As Boris Johnson said in that clip, two doses of any vaccine is not enough to stop you catching Omicron. But with a booster shot, protection against symptomatic disease goes up to 75%. And the gamble being made by the government is that by redeploying the NHS to focus on boosters this month, it will help them to prevent a collapse in January. This is the central scenario modelled by the London School of Tropical Medicine as to how an Omicron wave might translate into hospitalisations. And the model here assumes no new restrictions and the booster being moderately effective against Omicron. Now, given those conditions, the London School project that if only 50% of the population are boosted, daily hospital admissions could exceed the peak last January and hit 6,000 per day. However, if 99% are boosted, they project that it would remain below that peak. So you can see there why Boris Johnson is thinking speeding up these boosters is going to be key. More positively in all of the projections from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, projected deaths remain significantly below last winter. That's thanks to the vaccine. So can we do it? 
Well, getting everyone in England a booster before New Year would require delivering upwards of a million doses per day. That would mean jabbing more people every day than we have ever done on any day. And it appears that the NHS wasn't warned in advance. Here's Dr. Rachel Clark this morning. Please spare a thought for NHS staff who, at exactly the same time you did, found out last night from Boris Johnson they'd be delivering one million boosters a day from today. And speaking to ITV News, Yasmin Dawaze, a GP in Daventry, explained why she thinks the target is completely unachievable. I don't think it's achievable. I, think, I don't think it is. Um, I, I, I don't know how the nation can vaccinate 1.1 million people per day by the end of the month. I really don't. Um, and I, I just don't think it's been well thought out, you know. And we're still waiting on the delivery of the vaccines. We haven't, we won't, we haven't got enough to vaccinate the whole population of, of our town. We don't, we don't have enough. GPs today, I think, taken very much by surprise by that announcement. And today, the NHS website for vaccine bookings crashed under the weight of people trying to follow the Prime Minister's instructions. The government have claimed these are all just teething problems and more positively, actually, I've heard other GPs in interviews today on the radio suggesting that they could double the number of people boosted in the same amount of time if we scrap the 15-minute wait after getting jabbed with an mRNA vaccine. If you've got an mRNA vaccine recently, you'll, you'll know you have to go in there, you get the jab, you have to wait 15 minutes in case you faint. They've now decided, well, we think they've now decided that if you get rid of that 15 minutes, then we can boost people much more efficiently. A million sounds quite ambitious. I mean, in terms of the inaction, for me, part of the answer has to be go back to late October. And there, there was, of course, Rishi Sunak's budget and there was this big debate, oh, what's going to cause more of an economic downturn in the medium term? Is it, term, is it going to be Brexit or COVID? And if you said uh, COVID, people were sort of mocking you. This was only six weeks ago, Michael. I mean, I, at the time I said COVID and people were sort of saying, this guy's ridiculous. Brexit denier. And I said, well, look, we don't know. There might be mutations, new variants. We have no idea. It's an unforeseeable situation, far more so than Brexit. And I think the fact that you had the Treasury and the Chancellor making quite ambitious growth projections for the final quarter of this year going into next year, I think you then have to look at that and think the basic presumption was that we wouldn't see any major changes, no new variants, and that we would have more, more or less a normal Christmas this year. So I think inaction uh, is basically because the presumption was nothing would happen. And I think if you look at when the third booster started, I believe really end of September, Michael, maybe you can correct me. If that's the case, that people didn't see this coming, Again, it's another sort of moment where you think the, go the government really is entirely at fault here. You know, if we were even doing, say, four or 500,000 people a day and we'd started doing that, say, beginning of September, we, we essentially would have given a, a booster jab to virtually the entire adult population of the UK. So that for me is where the answer is, Michael. It's in the budget and the Tories took their eye off the ball and they started thinking about how do we get the deficit down rather than how the hell do we get out of COVID? Because that was not a one year, 18 month problem. That is a five to 10 year problem. We should have started boosting earlier so that we didn't have to do this almost undoable million jabs a day. I really don't think we are going to meet that exact target. We could get close potentially, I don't know. But the fact we have to be so ambitious now is because we were less ambitious before. And lots of people have been sharing this chart. So this is from the NHS COVID dashboard. And you can see how many people were jabbed every day. 
um, from the start of the year to now. And what you can see there, what lots of people have been pointing out, is that especially in September, kind of in August, we almost stopped jabbing people. And we already knew at that point that boosters would be effective, but we hadn't rolled them out. There was a, there was a bit of waiting um, on, on the vaccines advisors to approve that, but also potentially the government was somewhat dragging their feet. There is apparently a blame game going on in government at the moment as to why this delay happened. So I can show you a quote from the Politico email. This is from this morning, written by Alex Wickham. Politicians are accusing the Independent Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation of taking too long to approve vaccines for children and cut the wait time between doses. Some officials are criticising Health Secretary Sajid Javid for acting as a second chancellor and concentrating on the money rather than the health side. Others say it's Johnson and Number 10's fault for being distracted by COP26 and other issues and being complacent on boosters. Pretty much everyone says NHS England is painfully slow and has taken an age to creak into action. So you've got all parts of government there blaming other parts of governments for this delay. It all sounds plausible to me. All four of those explanations, none of them sound particularly unreasonable. It is worth noting, though, that on an international level, we aren't doing that badly. We're not doing quite as well as smaller countries such as Chile, Israel and Uruguay, but we are much more advanced in our booster campaign than Germany, Italy, France, United States, Spain, and obviously the world. That's not particularly because we've done well at our booster campaign, but because of vaccine apartheid. That's not a good news story. But we aren't behind the curve when it comes to boosters, even if we could have done this slightly earlier. So in terms of immunity, while yeah, we've got 40% of the, the population so far boosted, once you get to those older age groups, it's much more impressive. So above the 70-year-olds, this at the top says there that it's 80% of, of people over 70 have had a booster. It's in fact now over 85% of everyone over 70 has had a booster. So, so in terms of immunity, we aren't in a terrible place, but it is in terms of overall cases that we might have a bit more to worry about. On this metric, the UK is once again first among the big countries in Europe. And most crucially, more crucially even than, than cases, even before the Omicron wave properly hits, our hospitals are already close to breaking point. Chris Hopson is CEO of NHS Providers, which represents hospitals across the UK. On Talk Radio this morning, he described those pressures on the NHS. The issue is that we need to be really careful about um, using the COVID caseload as a proxy for the overall NHS pressure. And everything we have in front of us basically says that the NHS is busier for this time of year than it's ever been. We've got a very, very busy urgent and emergency care pathway. So we had more 999 calls in November than we've ever had in any previous November. The second highest number of people coming into A&E for any November. Again, Julia, as we've talked lots, um, we are trying to get through those elective care backlogs absolutely as quickly as possible. And the other thing that I think is really important for people to know is that our colleagues in social care are under enormous pressure. So last week, 11% of NHS hospital beds were effectively filled by pr uh, patients who were medically fit to discharge. So yes, you're absolutely right to say we've currently only got 5,000-ish patients in English hospitals with COVID compared to 34,000 in the January peak. But Every single chief executive I speak to, irrespective of whether a community, mental health, ambulance, uh, hospitals, is saying they're under unprecedented pressure for the
this time of year. And I'll give you one very simple stat. Uh, the, uh, last week, um, this time last year, we were at 87% bed occupancy. We're now at 94% bed occupancy. And this is all before we hit winter or any extra pressure from Omicron. So it's worrying. But of course, everybody's going flat out to provide best possible care to uh, anybody who needs it. That 94% occupancy stat is, is pretty scary. So 94% of beds are already occupied before Omicron hits. Hobson also did a good tweet, Fred, over the weekend on the pressures hospitals are under. This part stood out to me. So he wrote the following. Important to understand pattern and duration of these pressures are very different to January 2021 NHS experience. I'm currently being asked a lot, why can't NHS cope with this pressure when it did so well in January 2021? E.g. there were 34,000 COVID-19 patients in hospitals then versus 5,000 now. He goes on. January 2021, COVID peak was significantly dealt with by delaying elective activity we can no longer afford to delay. For example, one CEO told me that 12 of last week's A&E admitted emergency surgery patients had been on their waiting list and had turned into emergency cases. Not only are they dealing with you know, potentially the same number of daily hospitalizations as we saw last winter, I'm saying only potentially, we're, we're also... Very unlikely we'll see the same amount of deaths, but we could see similar pressures on hospitals. But they've got this backlog of elective surgeries. And obviously, if you push back elective surgeries, people get sicker and sicker and they can end up in, in A&E. Add on top of that, a completely exhausted workforce who are presumably, given the rates of COVID, also going to have to be self-isolating quite a lot. So you can see how the NHS is in an incredibly sticky situation. Aaron, my question for you here. Is that I've sort of seen lots of people on Twitter, sort of some doctors as well, say, look, you're asking the NHS to, to take all of this pressure in terms of giving out an up to a million boosters per day, yet you're still not closing the pubs. It's quite a common thing I've seen on Twitter at the moment. I, I have mixed feelings about it. Is it bad that we're putting all of the emphasis, all of the responsibility on, on healthcare workers and the rest of us are supposed to basically continue as normal? You're right, it's a difficult one, but I, the idea that you're meant to completely demobilise the economy for several years or several winters, I think is not plausible. That's not to say the NHS prior to COVID wasn't already massively underfunded. That's not to say that the Tories have completely decimated the NHS. But to me, would have been, what would have been far more sensible is to, to, to say, look, in the short to medium term, we're going to have to better staff the NHS. We're going to have to pay people a lot better. We're going to have to look after people so they don't get burnt out after six months. You know, there should have been a 15% pay increase for, for NHS staff this year. There should have been. And that should have been made with the explicit understanding that, look, you may be called on upon next winter like you were last winter. That's clearly not going to happen every year. You know, we're going to find more antibody treatments. Vaccines are going to improve. Every winter is going to get slightly better or significantly better, but it's going to get better. But I think there should have been a sort of overt covenant by the government with healthcare workers saying we're going to recruit more people, we're going to pay you more money, but there's also going to be the expectation we've got a, a hard few years ahead. We're in the middle of a pandemic. You know, this is a new pathogen which can, can kill. In the absence of vaccines, we would have seen tens of millions more people die. It's already kid, killed more than 10 million people. So that to me seems like a more relevant criticism. That said, I'm not a healthcare worker, but I mean, those are going to be the people which in a crisis are run ragged. If you're in war, then soldiers are going to work extraordinarily hard. That doesn't mean people go on the piss and take risks and behave entirely irrationally. 
and the, the pieces have to be picked up by the NHS and by the care system. I'm not suggesting that. But even if people took precautions and so on, th these would be some tough years for the NHS. So I think for me, the big, the big demand should have been pay. Should have been paying conditions. We need more NHS staff on far better wages and they can't be burnt out. But the reason we're in this mess is that we have fewer beds per population than most European countries. So even if we've got a better wall of immunity right now, because we had quite recently loads of people have been getting COVID all the time, so that gives you some natural immunity. Also, our booster campaign is ahead. We do have comparatively a much more overstretched health service because we're so stingy when it comes to spending on healthcare. We started this stream with a clip from Boris Johnson's address to the nation yesterday because that had no questions and answers because Boris Johnson couldn't be held to account. The Labour Party argued that Keir Starmer should also get to deliver his um, address to the nation. We're going to watch a, a little bit of that now. This Christmas, once again, we're at a critical moment in our fight against COVID. The new variant, Omicron, is spreading fast, and the argument that we don't know enough about it doesn't stack up. We may not be certain how dangerous it is, but we do know that lives are at risk. And again, our NHS is at risk of being overwhelmed. If that happens, more people will die. So we must do everything we can to protect the NHS. The scientists are clear, our best defence is the booster jab. The vaccine is safe and effective, it protects us and those around us. That's why Labour supports the government's plan to get every adult boosted by the end of the month. And personally, I want to urge every one of you to book an appointment or go to a walk-in centre as soon as you can. We must also use this Christmas break to vaccinate children over 12 and stop the spread in schools. If you haven't had your first or second jab, now is the time to come forward. It matters more than ever. That was Keir Starmer, essentially repeating almost the message that Boris Johnson delivered last night, saying, now's the time to step up and get a booster. Of course, I agree. That's how I also um, started this show. But should he have been a bit more oppositional? Aaron, what is your take on how Keir Starmer did or didn't take advantage of, of his five minutes? I mean, can we call it an alternative address? I'm not sure. It's so weird, Michael. You know, you had people going, ah, Boris Johnson, like Kevin Maguire from The Mirror and so on. Oh, Boris Johnson, this is a party political broadcast. Where's Starmer? Get him on. Oh, what? So he can say the exact same thing? It just it strikes me as really bizarre. You know, Boris Johnson basically made a public health broadcast, and that's why there were no doctors and so on. And you could say that's highly politicizing. It's because they wanted to change the front pages. I mean, that's probably all half true, but I still have absolutely zero problems with the prime minister in the middle of a pandemic doing what he did. Sorry, I don't. <laughs> if it was a Labour prime minister, the same people whining wouldn't have a problem with it either. And then Starmer comes in. By the way, I have no problem with him saying the same thing. As, as If we have more public figures going on the media, tweeting about you know how you can get your booster jab or what you should do, great. I have no problem with it. I just find it a little bit strange that people were sort of shouting from the rooftops, oh, we need to get Keir Starmer on what? So he can just say the platitudes that the Prime Minister said, okay. Okay, I mean, fine, knock yourself out. I'm sure some of the left would sort of focus on, you know, the, the flag and all that stuff. Do what you got to do. That doesn't really bother me. The problem for me is it's all he's got, right? There are no politics there. I mean, that would be absolutely great if he was saying we've got policies on renewing the country, on public services, on climate change, yada, yada, yada. 
and you've got the, the flag and you've got all the symbolism and the semiotics that maybe the radical left doesn't really like, whatever, I don't care. My worry with that stuff is it's all he's got. But fine, you, you do that, look presidential, you think that's what you've got to do, you knock yourself out. I, d I just find it weird that like, this is now politics. Yeah, we now have the leader of the opposition, so the exact same thing as the prime minister, but with a better haircut. Okay, I mean, maybe that's enough to win a general election. I just, I think it probably does say quite a lot about our political system, however. Well, there's also the public health angle. I mean, I think we, we agree on, because on, on Twitter last night, there were lots of people getting really angry that Boris Johnson was allowed to deliver this message about get your booster at 8 p.m. on primetime TV with no questions and answers instead mm. of making the announcement in Parliament or instead of having a press conference where all the media could ask him about Christmas parties. Now, I think if he did a press conference, the media should ask him about Christmas parties. That, that is what he should be being grilled on right now. But for me, if you want to get a message out to the public to get boosters, which I, I want everyone to do because I care more about like having a reasonable winter and, and hospitals not filling up than I do about whether or not Boris Johnson gets to look presidential, then an 8pm primetime broadcast is much better than standing up at 1pm in Parliament, which no one is going to watch and no one cares about. And it's much better than like a 7pm Prime Minister's Questions where everyone's distracted by, everyone's understandably distracted by Christmas parties. So I think, let Boris Johnson have his five minutes, let Keir Starmer have his five minutes, give David Attenborough five minutes, give the Queen five minutes. I think any, any big influential person who wants to get on telly for five minutes at prime time and tell us to all take our vaccines, like, amen, I'm fine with it. Look, we agree. You know, Keir Starmer's more than welcome to do it. I have zero issues with him having done it. But it's just this facetious, Boris Johnson's playing politics. What do you think? Keir Starmer sitting next to a flag with his little side parting saying the exact same thing with beautifully choreographed books, not one centimetre out of place. You think that's not playing politics? Okay, fine. In this particular instance, them playing politics actually kind of isn't bad for public health. It's conducive for like us all getting a reasonable message. I'm glad they all agree Michael. with this. Michael, look, as long as I get to eat my pancetta and Brussels sprouts and my, you know, my pre-ordered turkey legs on December the 25th, I don't care. You know, if Keir Starmer wants to do a, a bungee jump with, with <laughs> Boris Johnson and her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II <laughs> saying that we need to get booster jabs to get, you know, raise public awareness, please do it. I'm not missing Christmas dinner this year. I'm all for it too. Jovian R with £50. Very kind. Thank you very much. Firstly, thanks to everyone at Navarra Media. Secondly, it takes two weeks for the boosters to become fully effective. Do you think additional social controls are needed? Um, as I say, at this point in time, I kind of sit on the fence about this. I saw, I tweeted on, on Friday, actually, that I feel, I feel relatively philosophical about if, the, if they have to introduce new restrictions, I think this time it won't be for that long a period of time and they will be more modest than they were last Christmas. I think every... Every winter is going to get better from here on out when it comes to coronavirus because medical science is going to improve every year. So, you know, I, I can see why they don't want to close stuff. My prediction is that nothing is going to become illegal this time around because if you banned people from having parties, it would be impossible for the police to enforce it, not only because there are lots of people with, you know, fatigue from these restrictions, but also because the government just had a load of parties. So if anything's going to happen, I think it could be, you know, maybe closing nightclubs, maybe getting people to sit down in hospitality and advising people not to have parties. I think if, you know, if, if there is extreme pressure on hospitals, I could imagine that happening and I, I wouldn't be opposed. Um, the best planet is Earth asks, so if two vaccine doses is not enough to protect people, how is it good enough to mean you don't need to isolate after being in contact with COVID? Um, good point. So at the moment, the government policy, I think from tomorrow, in fact, is that if you have two vaccines, Instead of isolating for 10 days, 
after being in contact with COVID or even after being in contact with Omicron, sorry, because we weren't supposed to isolate after being in contact with, with normal COVID or Delta COVID anyway. Instead of isolating for 10 days, you can take a lateral flow test every morning for 10 days. I agree that the, the vaccine, non-vaccine distinction doesn't matter that much because if you're only double vaccinated, you really don't have much protection at all against catching COVID. You do have protection against getting seriously ill, but against catching it, not much at all. But also saying that I'm kind of in favor of the whole 10 morning lateral flow test instead of isolation. I just think it's getting people to isolate for 10 days after being in contact with someone with, with COVID-19 is, I think, one of the one of the more restrictive restrictions on offer at the moment. So I think it, it, you, it's more likely that people will comply if you do a morning lateral flow test, and they are very effective at catching you if you're infectious. Boris Johnson's Sunday night address on boosters was read by many as a cynical attempt to distract from other news that dropped that day. Namely, that last year when London was under Tier 2 restrictions, Boris Johnson hosted a potentially illegal Downing Street quiz. The image was leaked to the media and shows Boris Johnson in a room with two other people, which for a social event, which this was, was against the then covid rules. The Mirror also reported that many staffers took part in the quiz in their offices, which are, with up to 24 people to a room. That would also have been illegal because this was a social event. On the Andrew Marr show, Keir Starmer was asked whether Boris Johnson had broken any rules. Well, it looks as though he was. Um, and um, he must have known those other groups were in other rooms in his own building. And, you know, this is very important because sure. he's damaged his authority, is now um, so weak, his party is so divided, he can't deliver the leadership that this country needs. And, that, and we've got a very important vote coming up mm. next week. Um, and he can't even discharge the basic functions of government. He's the worst possible leader at the worst possible time. And you've just said that he broke the law in Downing Street. Well, it appears, and we'll have to look into it, well, but it's very hard to see how that's I... compliant with the rules. The question of the legality of any Christmas quiz couldn't be put to Boris Johnson on Sunday as his pre-recorded address did not come along with press questions. But 24 hours later, on a visit to a vaccine centre, Sky's Beth Rigby was able to put the allegations to him. It appears that the public care that it, you seem to have participated in a social event in number 10 when well, everyone was told not to. And I just, I, I hear you, Beth. I but hear you him. would have seen I all that your I staff members on Zooms in groups well, I, around I the building. So well, you're that, saying it didn't happen. I can tell you that I certainly break no rules, but the whole thing will be uh, looked into by uh, the, so, the cabinet secretary. And what I'm focused on, frankly, is the vaccine uh, rollout and, uh, and 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 the the campaign to forget everybody to understand how vital it is to get boosted now. So you've asked Simon Case to look at the December 15 been, event, just to be clear. He's looking at all these things. December the 15 event. You, if that's the what is that, is that the, yes. the, the the thing with the Zoom call? Yes. Yeah. You'll notice in that clip, Boris Johnson said he hadn't broken any rules, which is a shift from last week when he reassured the public that no rules had been broken by, by him or anyone else in Downing Street. Aaron, people had suggested that if images emerged of Boris Johnson taking part in parties, his time could be up. Does, does this picture, which was splashed on the front of the Sunday Mirror, meet that threshold? He was more likely to face criminal prosecution for that than, uh, I don't know, what was the... the there was this bizarre fantasy cosplay 
you know, true crime podcast people who've got a little bit too far into politics who thought that he was going to be taken to prison because of the wallpaper thing. I never quite understood that. This seemed like a more plausible set of circumstances where something which was uh, about legality and you either break the law or don't break the law. It's not about interpretation. It's not ambiguous. This looked like it could be one such moment. It wasn't, it wasn't a hugely egregious breach of the law. You know, it's not like he's swinging a bottle of champagne and he's surrounded by 30 people, but he does seem to have broken the rules. I mean, I do find this quite strange. Again, we don't want to lapse into questions of, oh, does it cut through? I mean, he does seem to have broken the rules. The rules are the rules. That's the point of the law. I mean, maybe we can talk about, maybe we didn't talk about it last week, actually, you know, the extent to which, you know, the London Metropolitan Police Service arguably owes him one because he didn't go after Cressida Dick. I mean, that's how I would interpret it. It does seem strange that you'd make such a clear and brazen allowance for the Prime Minister when they've quite clearly, with incontrovertible evidence, broken the rules. But there we are. I mean, because that's the issue, isn't it? Because, I mean, I think most people, I mean, I didn't see that pic, that picture of him hosting a Zoom quiz with two staff members, presumably next to him, as being like that outrageous or offensive. Even in the middle of a pandemic, if you're working with people in the day anyway, and then you host a quiz in the evening, mm-hmm. there isn't much increased risk of anyone catching anything. So on, on that level, I don't really care. But the point is that that's an argument against the rules that he wrote. So that's, that's what's infuriating about it all, which is that, yeah, you, I think you can make a very reasonable argument that, yes, he broke the rules, but the rules were a little bit unreasonable in that sense. But he wrote the rules and he imposed those rules on everyone else. So, so if he thought that, yeah, if you've been with someone in your workplace all day, then, then having a social event with them in the evening, that's perfectly reasonable, then he shouldn't have made it illegal to do precisely that. And the mindset they had in number 10, where they thought, oh, well, we this is illegal and it's illegal because we made it illegal, but we're still going to do it anyway. I mean, that is where you've got to be like, what, where were their heads at? That is meant to be the law, right? You, you either break it or you don't. It's not, it's not a convention. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it, about the sort of good chaps theory of government, where, you know, it's, it's good chaps you never write anything down. That's how a lot of the British quote-unquote constitution works. But we're not talking about that. You know, we're not talking about the niceties of how the prime minister should behave if they've broken this guideline or that convention or that norm. We're not talking about norms, we're talking about laws. And if somebody else had done that, like you said, the police would have gone there, there would have been consequences. There are stories from way back at the beginning of this thing. You know, we all remember them, Michael. There were people who were taking their dogs for a walk outside a five-mile um, radius from where they live. Or there were people, you know, who were going to meet a, a relative in, in, in somewhere which wasn't, you know, was inappropriate. Or their dog ran off and so somebody gave them the dog and they said, oh, you can't do that. That's interacting with a stranger. And look, you can say, yes, of course, in a crisis situation, I understand the rules, the rules, and you come that hard on people. Then you've got the prime minister making such a brazen up yours kind of thing. It was recorded as well, Michael. That's why I don't get it. was literally the whole point of it being on Zoom is that there are literal images of it, which means like, again, Michael, we all remember the experiences of 12 months ago, 18 months ago, more, two years ago now almost, you know, going back about 18 months. And we were terrified that somebody would see us doing something we shouldn't be doing. This guy was having fucking Christmas Zoom quizzes. You know? We were terrified. Oh, my God, this person might see me. This man had the most to lose of anybody, and he, he, he cared the least, which says so much about Boris Johnson. And the fact that the, the police won't even punish that. I mean, what kind of example does that set to the rest of the country? Not a good one. It's, it is strange about his judgment because you, you would assume that he would have said, you know, there's two staffers. He doesn't need two staffers in there to host a round of a quiz. So you would have thought he would have said, look, I know this is a bit silly and we've spend, been spending all day with each other, but this is clearly a social event. So one of you is going to have to leave the room. You know, that, is, that is what someone who was 
thinking, oh, I make the rules, so I should probably follow them, would have done. But clearly that's, you know, that's never been at the forefront of this guy's minds. Of the Plan B measures implemented by the government to slow the spread of Omicron, it's the introduction of COVID passes that has proven the most controversial. The legislation going to Parliament this week would require attendees at nightclubs and large events to either have been fully vaccinated or to have taken a lateral flow test. It's got a lot of backbenchers riled up. Check out this exchange between host Rachel Burden and Tory MP Marcus Fish. The vast majority of people who are vaccinated feel that their freedoms are being impinged by others who are able to walk around and potentially be infectious and not have to demonstrate that they're not. So if you're talking about freedoms and liberties, it's the liberty to go into a pub and know that the chances of not being infected are greatly diminished because either you've shown your vaccine uh, certification or you've shown proof of a negative LFT. What is no, the problem? No, we, we, we live in a free society in this country and what you've just said is exactly what we must fight against. This idea that but, there but, should but be a freedom papers, not to be infected. Papers, what about that freedom? Papers, please, a papers please society is an authoritarian state that we should all absolutely resist. But I'll say it again. Just can you answer this for me? What about the freedom not to be infected? Look, um, we are very well vaccinated in this country. It's, it's been a great success. People have the freedom to do what they want with their own bodies and the freedom of association. And if you want to undo those things, you're not worthy of working for the BBC, in my opinion. Well, well, that's quite a personal statement to make. I suppose yes, what I'm is. doing is putting across the case that many of our listeners have. They don't want to go into a pub or a restaurant, a lot of them, if they don't feel safe and secure. So well, if you're talking go. about the safety of... Don't go then. You don't, you don't tell other people what they should do with their bodies. Sorry, don't mm. do it. No, I, I, but the point I'm making is you're not telling someone what to do with their body other than yes, to show are. they've taken a test. I don't... Well, both of those things, you are segregating society based on um, an unacceptable thing. You, we are not a papers please society. This is not Nazi Germany, okay? Mm, no, I, I, don't, I don't think it is. And I think there is a long, long way between what people are being asked to do and Nazi Germany. I don't think you can well, make it's, a direct it's the comparison thin end, It's the, the thin end of an authoritarian wedge, and that's why we will resist it. But you are and telling everyone to go and get a booster. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a good idea. That's yeah. a good idea. But vaccine passports is a really, really dangerous step to take. So Marcus Fish, who last week voted for a bill which allows the Home Secretary to strip people of citizenship without any notice, thinks that having to show you were vaccinated or have taken a free test to go to a nightclub is a move comparable to Nazi Germany. What a character. You know, he went to Winchester College, obviously comes from a very affluent family, worked in finance, and they just sailed through life saying these kind of mad things. I thought the barb as well about the, uh, the, the BBC presenter on Radio 5 Live, you can't, if you say this, then you can't work for the BBC. I mean, it, that sounded to me, and I know this is, this is so often stated by journalists because they love to talk about themselves, all this intimidation. That did sound quite close to intimidation of a journalist. If you ask us, he said, we're not a papers please society, you know, we're not authoritarian society, but as an elected politician who represents the government, I'm going to say, if you ask a certain kind of question, you shouldn't work for the public service broadcaster. That seems quite authoritarian, Marcus Fish. So what he thinks of authoritarian is things that he doesn't like. If he likes something and it's authoritarian, well, that's 
that's fine. It's not really authoritarian. And we are a papers please society. You try and not be born in this country and apply for nationality. It costs thousands of pounds, huge amount of paperwork, or, 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 or the amount of bureaucracy attendant around, uh, you know, people who now have to apply for work visas, European nationals who previously could live and work here prior to Britain's departure from the EU. Now they have to sign documents, write papers, there's bureaucracy. Is that fascism? You can't run large organizations, let alone states, without paperwork and without coordination and without certain constraints on people's liberties. And this goes back all the way to the start of this crisis. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. COVID-19 is a fundamental challenge to the conservative idea of liberty, which is about you know a complete absence of constraints on the individual. We have to move away from that because epidemiology doesn't work on the base of the individual. It works on the base of a social organism. So whatever Marcus Fish thinks, or whatever I think, is kind of irrelevant. We do have to act in the broader public interest. You know, people get vaccinated, not necessarily to keep themselves safe. If you're under 18, actually a vaccine will probably make marginal difference to you. You do it for a, a, a broader social interest. And that's not just with regards to COVID, that, that applies generally with pathogens. So, you know, here we have quite an elegant example of, uh, of, a, of a deranged idea of what liberty is. Uh, and I do find it just utterly perplexing, these people who say, well, you defend conservative liberties. Well, actually, you, you're voting to remove quite fundamental liberties around freedom of protest. You're voting to remove the right of appeal or giving people warning. Fundamentally, they're getting rid of the right of appeal of people who are dual nationals whose citizenship you might want to remove. You know, you're not a bureaucratic party. You're not prone to authoritarianism. Okay. Seems rather hypocritical to me, sort of playing and bit of a pick and mix with regards to where your values apply and don't, but you do you, Marcus Fish. Well, I'll put this to you, but I, I, it's probably more the classical liberal idea of freedom as opposed to the conservative one, isn't it? But sort of classical liberalism now inhabits conservative parties more than it does any other parties. We've showed you a right-winger disagree with vaccine passes, COVID passes. There are obviously lots of people on the left who also have their problems with it. Personally, I'm actually, I actually sit on the fence this time around because I think the marginal benefit of them is potentially quite low. If they're only for nightclubs, etc., is it really going to incentivize people to go get a vaccine, especially when you can also have a test, given that double vaccines don't really stop you transmitting the virus? Is it going to stop transmission in those places? That means that it, it did kind of make sense to me that Sajid Javid said they're going to upgrade it to being free doses or a test soon. Whether or not how, how effective this will be, I think, is up for debate. I personally don't really buy the argument that this is really dystopian and this is sort of like the government collecting all of this data about us, which can then be used as this sort of slippery slope to control us all because I have a vaccine passport on my phone. It's just my NHS details that the government already have. It's actually pretty cool. I can go through my whole medical history, which is kind of interesting. That seems like actually that's empowering people. And the places I go actually often ask for a negative test anyway. Lots of nightclubs in London are, are currently doing that. So to me, I find the freak out over this, both from the left and from the right, a little bit perplexing. I think, Aaron, you're on a similar page to me on, on this one, aren't you? We've got loads of pushback from it. I think there was the thing about Sajid Javid today, which is alarming, Michael, where he says we, we, would, we would introduce this measure and then actually we, we would change what I don't it's think, about quite quickly. I don't think that is alarming. It's the only thing that's is coherent to do. Basically... Instead of thinking of it as a COVID passport, you think it's a, it's a lateral flow testing pass. It's a lateral flow pass. No, I have no but you get But you get an opt-out if you are 
vaccinated to the extent where you're quite unlikely to transmit COVID. And if you're only double vaccinated, that's not you. I'm sorry. You, you should still be taking that lateral flow test before you go to a public place. I'm, okay, so the principle I'm trying to say is I'm worried about the principle of we will introduce a pass and we will use it to rapidly expedite certain behavioural changes. I think that's quite a worrying thing. My point is, you had yesterday the announcement of the rollout of the booster campaign and you got Sajid Javid saying this today. I find that quite, I do find that quite concerning because I don't think policy should be made like that. And I think generally speaking, when you're referring to civil liberties, you need a bit more of um, analytical, rigorous thoughtful debate. And this seems like it's being done on the hop. We weren't thinking that boosters were all important until literally the day before. And now we're saying, actually, we're going to curtail your ability to move around on the basis of whether or not you've got a booster. And I think a one day difference between those two statements is quite scary, Michael. As a principle, I think it's very bad to make, to, make, to make policy along those lines. And I think it indicates it can happen again and again and again. So I agree with you. I, I have no problem with look, this is what we understand as vaccinated. If you haven't got a test, but you've got this, great, knock yourself out. I agree with you, but I, it's not good. Because also, remember, Michael, Boris Johnson thinks of himself as a certain as a certain kind of libertarian. Imagine if you've got that precedent and you have PM Pretty Patel. I don't think that's positive. I think you could see something actually pretty dangerous. So I understand why people have misgivings. I just think seeing the booster as a precedent, which is over and above the, the passes in the first place, I, I, I don't really see that, that there being a qualitative difference, especially when you've got these lateral flow tests as an option. And also, they're going to give us a month or so to get these boosters, he said, until everyone's had a reasonable chance to get one. The whole seems, country. Seems fair enough to me. I don't think they're going to implement this until January. But even if they do, they, well, I mean, I take a lateral flow test anyway, but if I hadn't you know, queued up to get my booster last week, I think it's perfectly reasonable that I should take a lateral flow test before I go to a nightclub. Look, Michael, look, let me, let me clarify, Michael. I'm not one of these people that says this is like, you know, I'm not Marcus Fish. Right, I'm not going to start saying this is you know deeply authoritarian. I've said right from the start, and we've come. I've had loads of earache for it. I've zero problems with people having to produce a negative test in order to access large indoor areas where people are socialising. I think it's entirely legitimate. I don't see any argument against it. When I went to cover COP26, we had to do that every day. When I went abroad to Malta, we had to do it. It wasn't authoritarian. It meant that in both spaces, I didn't get COVID. Fantastic. But like I say, Michael, I, I do worry where you have that policy being made on the hoof so quickly. Boris, okay, yeah, he's a bit of a libertarian. I do wonder, Michael. I do wonder. You know, you're saying the booster. We're going to everybody has to get the booster within the next month, and that that isn't even announced in Parliament. I agree, it's preferable it's announced on the telly on a Sunday night. But all of a sudden, we're going into a strange set of conventions, which is about the media and about day to day media management, rather than actually, okay, how are we doing this in a judicious medium-term footing. Doesn't fill me with confidence. Well, I'd say neither of those mean you have to do it because, you know, Boris Johnson was just encouraging us to get it and we can still take a lateral flow test. But I feel like we might go around in circles now, so we should go to the next story. I should warn people, it is pretty upsetting. It involves murder and, and the murder of young gay men. Really, really horrible, although I do think um, definitely worth engaging with. Late in the summer of 2014, a body was found by a dog walker in the grounds of St. Margaret's Church in Barking. The body was that of 22-year-old Gabriel Cavari, also known as Gabriel Klein. Just three weeks later, another body was found. It was 21-year-old Daniel Whitworth, who was found by the very same dog walker in the very same spot in the churchyard. Both men were gay, both had died of GHB overdoses, and both were found in the same position, propped up against the churchyard wall, their t-shirts lifted up to expose their stomachs. 
Less than a year later, the body of a third man, 25-year-old Jack Taylor, was found. He was propped up on the other side of the churchyard wall, his T-shirt lifted up, his midriff exposed. He, too, had died from a GHB overdose. Stephen Port, he was convicted in 2016 of the murder, rape and poisoning of these three young men. He was sentenced to life in prison with a whole life order. He will never be released. It's a tragic, sickening story about a vile murderer and young, innocent victims. It's also, though, one about police failure, because Gabriel Cavari, Daniel Whitworth and Jack Taylor were not the first young men killed by Stephen Port. In June 2014, Port had raped and murdered Anthony Walgate. He was aged 23. After killing Walgate, he dumped his body outside his flat, propped up against the wall with his belly exposed. After he dumped the body, he made this call to 999. Emergency ambulance, what's the address of the emergency? Cook Street, there's a young boy, look at his cats outside. I don't know. Outside of which number? Uh, 4758. Sorry? 4758, I think. 47, Cook Street. Yeah. What, what area? Parking. Looks like you've collapsed or had a seizure or something. It's always just drunk. That claim that he had merely found the young boy outside was a lie. And after repeatedly changing his story, the police arrested Port for perverting the course of justice. However, they never opened a murder investigation after the deaths of Kavari and Whitworth. That was despite the urging of friends and family. The details of these later cases make that oversight on the part of the police almost unbelievable, and there were multiple clues as to what was actually happening. Daniel Whitworth, Port's third victim, was found with what purported to be a suicide note. It read, I am sorry to everyone, mainly my family, but I can't go on anymore. I took the life of my friend Gabriel Klein. We was just having some fun at a mate's place and I got carried away and gave him another shot of G. I didn't notice while we was having sex that he had stopped breathing. I tried everything to get him to breathe again, but it was too late. It was an accident, but I blame myself for what happened and I didn't tell my family I went out. I know I would go to prison if I go to the police and I can't do that to my family and at least this way I can at least be with Gabriel again. I hope he will forgive me. The note finished by saying, by the way, please do not blame the guy I was with last night. We only had sex, then I left. He knows nothing of what I have done. I have taken what G I have left with sleeping pills. So if it does kill me, it's what I deserve. Feeling dizzy now, as took 10 minutes ago. So hoping you understand my writing. The guy he was with the night before was his killer, Stephen Port. And it was Port who wrote this fake suicide note, which was intended to absolve him of not one, but two murders. The police accepted it at face value. Whitworth's parents, for their part, never believed that the handwriting was that of their son. This didn't stop a Met Police officer from claiming at an earlier inquest that his father had confirmed it. It later turned out that rather than consulting handwriting experts, as the police had promised, they simply compared the note to Whitworth's diary entries. Any discrepancies were put down to Whitworth being in a strange state of mind when he wrote it. 
Even worse, Ricky Wormsley, who's Whitworth's partner, was not even allowed to see the note because being Whitworth's partner was not enough to make him next of kin. Uh, I did ask if I could see the letter myself, but the response I got was, sorry, you're next of kin, so we can't show. Yeah, I, I believe it's a, a, a mixture of everything. So, uh, so they a bit of laziness, incompetence, lack of training. But I absolutely stand by that they were being homophobic towards these four victims and making general assumptions that they're all gay, young gay men who take drugs and. They also, I believe, just looked at that letter and just took it at face value. If Wormsley had been able to see that note and recognise it as a fake, it seems likely that the life of Port's final victim, Jack Taylor, could have been saved. However, even after Taylor's death, the police initially refused to open a murder investigation. After these four deaths in the same neighbourhood and in the same suspicious circumstances, it was only after the family of the final victim drew a connection between the four victims that the police were forced into action. After initially dismissing their approaches, it was a month after Taylor's death that his family convinced the police to publish this CCTV image of Taylor and Port walking together on the night of his death. Almost immediately, someone in the force recognised Port as known to them. The case was passed to the homicide team, and two days later, 16 months after he took his first victim, Port was arrested for murder. Every detail of this story just gets more and more shocking. Three young men died because the police wouldn't do the job they're paid to do. And we have to ask, what made this possible? Well, the families of Port's victims are clear. This is the sister of Jack Taylor. We was worried, are the police doing their job? Why haven't they been in contact with us? Like we had absolutely no support whatsoever because they made assumptions of what had happened to Jack. They just thought he had taken drugs, he had overdosed, there was nothing suspicious there. Stephen Port took Jack's life um, and was able to take Jack's life because that's the long short of it. He was able to, he was allowed to because they could have caught him way before if they'd looked into anything at all, then they could have saved other lives. Last Friday, an inquest into the deaths of Port's victims came to a close. The jury judged that astounding police failings probably contributed to the murders of the last three victims. The coroner, however, ruled that the jury could not make a judgment about whether the investigation was blighted by homophobia. The Met apparently fought tooth and nail to keep that issue out. The spokesman for the families had this to say. We are incensed by the police's successful attempts to prevent the jury from examining whether prejudice played any part in the police's actions. The coroner did not rule that the police were not homophobic and our position remains unchanged. Based on the treatment we received, our firmly held belief is that the Metropolitan Police's actions were, in part, driven by homophobia. Helen Ball, Assistant Commissioner for the Met, denied that the countless errors in the investigation had anything at all to do with homophobia. I don't think the Met is institutionally homophobic uh, and I don't think that my colleagues are homophobic as well. I don't think that that has been an issue in these investigations. It was a range of different um, mistakes, leads that weren't followed, curiosity that perhaps wasn't quite there things that weren't tied up and understood to be contributing. 
the excuses there, curiosity that wasn't quite there, things that weren't tied up and understood to be contributing. Aaron, I want to bring you in on, on this case. I mean, it, it's just astounding, the failure after failure after failure, and then the police just not, not being willing to consider at all that this could be to do with prejudice. And are they just this bad at their jobs in every single murder they, well, I mean, they didn't even investigate it as murder. Every single suspicious death, it is their job to investigate. You've got to start, I think, from quite a, what might seem counterintuitive, which is that the job of the police is not to solve crimes. That might seem counterintuitive. The job of the police, historically, the reason why they were created was to maintain public order. And that is an argument you can find made re repeatedly in, in some pretty good scholarship on the matter. And if you look at actually the number of cases solved in the UK, I think now it's abysmally low. It's terrifyingly low. But even if it's high, high watermark, I think in the early 2010s, because you had all this investment from New Labour, I think only about 15% of reported crimes were solved, reported crimes. Now it's about 7.5%, I think. But, but that isn't really their job. Their job is to act as a certain kind of bureaucracy to process things quickly. And, and there's a reason why crimes that happen, often violent crimes, and you get nothing more than a crime reference number. And yet when there's a protest, you see dozens, if not hundreds of police somewhere, because public order is that raison d'etre. And I think we do need as a society a, a broader conversation around, around what their role is. And I think, sadly, too many people have been taken in by the kind of media spectacle of you know, crime dramas and Netflix series. That, that isn't really the bread and butter of what policing looks like. And this is really horrific. I mean, this is really horrific. Not even I thought it was... It was this brazenly bad. Of course, we see it repeatedly in regards to race. And we've seen it with the Sarah Everard case and others with, with regards to uh, gender violence against women. But we, we are going nowhere fast when it comes to policing and, 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 and prejudice in this country. We're going fast. Uh, we're going nowhere fast. You can go back to the mid-1990s, 1997, of course, with Stephen Lawrence. Substantively, I don't think that much has changed. In terms of accountability and saying you're not doing your job, you're not serving the public like you should and, and, and means to recourse and doing something about it and proper scrutiny and the default of both political parties to the police, even in, under Jeremy Corbyn and the media coverage. Terrifying, absolutely terrifying. This is an organization, let's talk about the London Metropolitan Police Service, which has billions of pounds in its budget, has extraordinary authority over people's lives, is answerable to the Home Secretary, and yet there doesn't seem like basic mechanisms of accountability and scrutiny when it comes to things like this, when it comes to whether or not they uphold the values which is a society we care about. You'd think that's quite important. And the thing is, no politician wants to touch it. It's a hot potato because they see the cost as being too high. You don't start a political fight with the police. You don't call them out on things because you don't come out of that the winner. I assume it's a mixture of, of, of two things going on here, which is one, as you say, the police aren't actually very good at investigating crime. Like, it, this is just incompetence after incompetence after incompetence. The other, I think, the prejudice, I mean, I presume there's some homophobia. I, I believe the partner of, of one of the victims when he says that he would have been treated differently if they were in a heterosexual relationship. That seems entirely plausible to me. I think probably, you know, the overarching story of what's going on here is that the police didn't think that these victims were real victims. You know, they didn't really think that they were worth investigating. And that was potentially partly because they were gay. I think it was probably a lot to do with that they had overdosed, well, they hadn't overdosed on drugs, they'd been poisoned with drugs, but the, the police just read it as, oh, these are just gay guys who have chem sex, they take dangerous drugs, it would be a waste of police time, essentially, for us to investigate this properly. 
So we're just going to push it over there. You know, loads of people fit into that category. Drug takers, sex workers, people who are homeless, people from certain ethnic backgrounds, people who the police don't think it's their job to serve. Even if they, I think they serve, you know, almost everyone quite poorly, but these are the people that they don't even bother at all. And, and that just seems like what has happened over and over again in this situation, which is they've just not felt like this is a job they need to do. And it seems pretty clear that three young men died as a result because they, they should have drawn the dots after that first boy was killed. The, the, the police knew that he had called 999 and lied. He had called 999 and said, I found this guy unconscious in the street. Actually, he dragged that guy out of his own room. That's the point when the flag should have been raised. And as I said, they looked through his computer. On his computer, there were all sorts of search terms which should have led them to recognize that there was a bigger story going on here. So some of the search terms which were, were on his computer, sleeping boy, unconscious boys, drugged and raped, taking date rape drug, gay teen knocked out raped, guy raped and tortured young nude boy. These searches were all made the day before he killed his first victim. The police, they seized his computer, they didn't bother looking. If they had, I presume, they would have drawn the connection and the three young men would not have been killed. Three, three young lives would have been saved. This is also not just a story about police failure, it's a story about police failing to investigate themselves because there actually has already been a watchdog investigation into this case. It was completed in August 2018. Their full findings haven't been published yet, but in their summary, they write this. We and the Metropolitan Police Service agree that officers did not have a case to answer for misconduct or gross misconduct. We also agree that the performance of nine officers fell below the standard required and they will need to undergo measures to ensure performance is improved. So essentially, no, no one did anything that wrong, but maybe we could send some of them on a training program. And despite that recognition of at least some failures, the Belfast Time reports that none of the 17 officers involved were disciplined and seven were even promoted. So the IOPC, they didn't get any justice whatsoever. Basically, sounds to me like it was a whitewash. As I say, the whole thing hasn't been published. It's only once you get a jury investigation that any of the truth starts to come out. Even then, what they can consider is limited by, by what the judge will allow them to consider. They're not allowed to consider institutional homophobia. Do you see any route, Aaron, by which the Metropolitan Police changes? If not this, what? No, they don't want to change. And we've seen this repeatedly in terms of when they have changed, it's been in response to, to mass public unrest. Change for the, for the Metropolitan Police Service would have to come out of something which looks like or resembles an existential threat. Now, how does the police respond to an existential threat? Well, we know they have more than 70 press officers, the Metropolitan Police Service, and they bombard journalists with a political line. They lobby them to cover certain stories, to not cover certain stories, to conceal certain data. What would happen with the political establishment? Well, they wouldn't say much. And if they did attack the police, the force of the tabloid media, the print media on them would be extraordinary. So we do have this complex in this country, the, this nexus of power between billionaire oligarch media, between ultimately a frightened political class at best, even the good ones, between a, a hugely well-resourced organisation, which is the Metropolitan Police Service, other ones, of course, Greater Manchester Police, West Midlands Police, Yorkshire Police, etc. But, you know, the, the London Met is a, a huge organisation. And like I say, 
by virtue of what would have to happen, their response is fight. It's not flight, it's fight. Um, you look at the, the Duggan event, for instance, Mark Duggan killed by the police. You have riots as a response to that. Now, the instinct from the media and the political class and the Met was to say this was just tens of thousands of people randomly decided to get violent and there were no deeper economic grievances. There were no deeper grievances with policing more generally. You see it in the early 80s with riots in Brixton and Toxteth. Yeah, some people start talking about community policing. Oh, it's not like it used to be. I'm sure it isn't like it used to be, right? In terms of people getting the shit kicked out of them for doing nothing. I'm sure it happens far less than it used to. Well, we know it happens far less than it used to. And you hear about some of the stories, for instance, in regards to, I think there was a police station in Dalston in the 80s. If you hear about, you know, the special branch, Scotland Yard, and how they were dealing with sort of political activists in the, in the 70s and the 80s, things have changed, methods have changed. But no, I don't, I don't think they will ever face accountability. Accountability and scrutiny for the London Metropolitan Police Service and other police forces looks like a threat. And that's the problem here. That's the problem. So you can't have growth or constructive criticism or progress. You know, even somebody like Stephen Lawrence's parents, Michael, Stephen Lawrence, huge police failings. Everybody admits it. Even then, notwithstanding, the Lawrence family were, were monitored by undercover police officers for years afterwards. Christopher Alder, Janet Alder, his sister, pressed for justice for her, her brother, Christopher, another black Briton. I think she, she once said an event I spoke alongside her. She said, I think they, they discovered, I think, 16, 17 plainclothes officers, officers had infiltrated her at some point during her life, whether it was activist meetings or, you know, whatever, trying to monitor what she was doing. She was trying to get justice for her brother, Christopher Alder. People are entitled to Google that name if they want to know more about his case. So, no, we won't. We won't because they see scrutiny as a threat and they're aided and abetted by the media and politicians in this country. We might see change in somewhere like Scotland or Wales because things are done a bit differently. But in terms of the centre, the British state, London reaching out, no chance. Got an interesting comment from Maggie Gardner. The worst thing is that the families and friends were doing the investigative work the police should have done and were still ignored, total incompetence by police. I have to say, that's kind of what I found most shocking about this, you know, and seeing interviews with the family, like, we, we had to join the dots and they were still ignored. It, it's got parallels with Grenfell really because after after the tragedy at Grenfell one of the things that was most striking and most shocking was that there had been warnings there had been warnings by people who were living in that building that they were living in an unsafe building but they were ignored because they were working class people who the authorities didn't think they had to pay attention to and this seems to be exactly what has happened here there were people who said look are you sure there's not a connection between these three very similar deaths and he's like no 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 this is just druggies overdosing sickening Let's wrap up there. Aaron Bastani, uh, always a pleasure to be joined by you. My pleasure, Michael. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.